Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to um, have Rune Rasmussen with us this afternoon. Rune is uh, a historian of religions with a special interest and study focus on Afro-Atlantic and Nordic religions. Um, he has authored the Nordic Animist Calendar 2020-2021, and he has authored the book, The Nordic Animist Year. He also has ongoing projects around Nordic animism. These are traditions that engage the gods and spirits of nature and landscape characteristic of the North of Northern Europe, uh, which offer a new environmentalist way of engaging and acting by focusing on traditional animist knowledge and its relationship with concepts crucial to everyday life, such as ecology and sustainability. So I am going to hand you over to Rune and let him give you a talk. And if you would like to put your questions into the chat, I will ask them when he's finished. Enjoy. Over to you, Rune. Thank you very much, Louisa. Uh, let me just start by apologizing for my voice here. I'm a little bit rusty. Um, and um, yes, uh, let me just um, plunge in here. I, uh, I'm historian of religion, and I'm working on um, uh, I'm working on uh, looking at Euro descendant religion uh, as a history in which animist knowledge has been rejected. Um, sort of inspired by indigenous knowledge scholarship um, and seeing sort of animist relating with the world that has been there and to some cases still are there is there among your descendants and white people right um and the thing is that animism or animist relating with the world it tends to be in a kind of a conflict with that sort of big amorphous thing that we call modernity uh, because the modern perception of reality tends to uh, tear apart or segment and an, an inner human space where there is like culture and ideology and, and meanings and cherubs playing harps and that kind of thing. And then an exterior dead world that's there for us to uh, uh, exploit and consume and uh, eradicate and all that stuff. So uh, part of the point is that an, an animist way of relating to the world might sort of heal the ailment of our world because we have... Um, in the process of destroying the world. Right, so I'm sort of working on this as a scholar and trying to communicate in different ways and, and uh, in public space and having a, uh, platforms online and stuff like this. I've also arranged this kind of recurring uh, ceremonial event based on these uh, animist reading uh, of uh, Nordic cultural history. Um, and um, yeah. So I've also uh, recently, I've started to look specifically at totemism uh, because totem is a word that comes from the American Anishinaabe language, totem, uh, but today in, in English, it's universally uh, used. I've met people in Africa and Australia who use the English word uh, totem for exactly those kinds of, of kinship relations that bind humans together, together with other cohabitants of the land. And um, that kind of tie is obviously um, an important thing, and it's a very re relevant place to start if you want to recreate uh, animist 
connectedness between your descendants and the lands that, that we live in. So, um, and looking at it, I actually found uh, quite a lot of, of sort of totemic um, material in um, North European cultural uh, history. For instance, it sort of seemed to be lurking behind uh, specific symbols, actually, of, of social uh, groups uh, in, here in southern Scandinavia, where I'm from myself. Right. So, and here I'm looking specifically at the raven, um, because the raven is very typically and characteristic totem animal in the areas of the world where there are ravens, particularly in the cultures among, along the North American uh, Pacific coast. And um, there, are, there are many cultures actually all around the circumpolar part, part of the globe where you find this raven as a really important fig figure. And my sort of analytic suggestion is to see the North European, the Nordic raven motif as part of this uh, circumpolar motif where basically Raven is an ancestor, a trickster, a shaman, and a creator. Uh, among Native Americans, he's sometimes anthropomorphic, has human shape, but turns bird when he puts on his mask. Um, and uh, these Native Americans uh, the, on the Pacific coast, they also uh, enact this mystery of human totem entanglement uh, by having these transformation masks like this one here, that can open and then there's a human face inside. So this is a totemic motif, the human inner nature of raven, the raven, uh, raven nature of a human clan, but also the human nature of raven as the ancestor to specific groups of humans, right? So um, if we look at the, the Nordic uh, raven uh, motif, then it has a quite perhaps even surprisingly similar cocktail of motifs. Uh, you have this idea that, that there is a, a raven god, a god Odin is sometimes called the raven god. It's a name for Odin. And he has, is exactly an ancestor, uh, trickster, shaman, and creator. He's mostly anthropomorph, but he's also known as the mask bearer, Grimnir, and he can turn into bird shape, it seems, ravens embodying his mind. So there's, there are these raven fibulae found from the pre-Christian period where the totemic human inner nature of raven is expressed exactly like these uh, masks that you find in the American, uh, American Pacific coast. So, uh, and, and during the, the Viking age, there are like sagas or chronicles that talk about Scandinavians using this raven flag or standard, a banner. Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation about how that flag may have looked, um, but uh, looking at different archeological finds, it's not quite clear. But my thesis is primarily that scholarship has sort of tend to overlook the totemic part of this motif. The, the Nordic raven totem is part of this circumpolar raven motif that you find among Inuits and Klingit, Haida, Chinchan, Kapwaka uh, Native Americans, a lot of different peoples, even among Chinese um, and possibly other European peoples as well. Uh, and um, because to my, my eyes, when people have this exactly this motif as sort of a symbol that, for instance, they carry into a war or something like that, or when, when they have the raven god as the ancestor god of diff very different groups, groups of Swedes, group of Danes, group of Norwegians, um, particularly the English 
um, and, and when they're using this in war, then it seems as if there is a totemic, an overlooked totemic aspect of the symbol. So that's kind of the analytical thing that I've been uh, trying to say. Then I connected this also to a, um, a couple of British scholars called uh, Thomas and Patricia Thornton, and they looked at the Native American, specifically Raven Myth, in order to see the time that we live in as the Raven scene, the age of Raven, where Raven is the trickster who's on the one side his gluttony and his selfishness actually symbolize humanity in our, you know, infantile way of messing up the whole, uh, the, the whole planet. Um, but also in the creativity and wisdom and sort of capacity for adaptability that uh, humanity needs as we are now entering the period that the uh, vulva, the uh, female shaman or civil uh, or something like that, a prophetess of our ancestors predicted as the Ragnarok, the time where all bonds of kinship has broken down to such an extent that we are entering into a period of uh, total ecological and social collapse, which is, this is kind of another point of mine that I won't go into detail with here, but, um, and uh, here's some pictures of China. This is because the uh, the Thorntons here, the scholars that I'm referring to, they actually use China as an example uh, of where, uh, according to them, in, in the Chinese Bronze Age, the Zhou culture took over from the Shang culture. And, um, and that, in, in the perspective of these scholars, represented a general movement in Chinese, Chinese history where you move away from Confucianism, no, where you move away from Taoism, uh, towards Confucianism. And Taoism is this very organic, harmony-based, transformation-focused way of thinking of the world, where Confucianism is a much more ethnocentric, sort of conservative social, social compliance ideology. Um, and we could perhaps see something similar going on in, in, our, in, our, in, in our own uh, culture over, uh, over time. Because there's been this sort of tendency to, um, to reject, uh, towards rejecting or domesticating the raven symbolism. And this goes all the way back to the first encounters with Christianity, where uh, we see that these Christian visionary experiences where evil heathens are symbolized by ravens, but then they convert to Christianity and are magically transformed into Christian peaceful doves. So the, this is an, a mythological domestication motif. Um, and, uh, and you see this very much in, in cultural history that raven as a symbol becomes extremely demonized. It becomes a symbol of, of evil. Um, it's called the, the apostle of Satan. I'm not kidding you, um, but also still associated with wisdom. And the idea of humans transforming into to ravens is still there, but it becomes something very evil. It's something that witches do, or it's a curse or something like that. Um, particularly in southern Scandinavia, uh, an, an important change hap happened in the uh, 12th, 13th century between two kings, both named Valdemar, Valdemar the Great and Valdemar the Conqueror, where the battle omens changed. In the uh, time of the father, it was still ravens that signaled the victory in a battle. battle. That was Valdemar the Great, but his son, Valdemar the Conqueror went to Estonia on a crusade. Apparently the uh, Estonians uh, deserved to be murdered because they were still heathen. So um, 
Uh, and at that point, the, uh, the raven had become obsolete. So that is where uh, a specific flag came to a place, which later were to become the, the Danish flag, this one here. The white cross of the otherworldly transcendent longing has completely replaced this totemic trickster interconnectedness and codependence with the world in, in Valdemar's uh, flag. Right, so you see that that there used, there might have been a totemic uh, symbol uh, for specific groups of Scandinavians, and then a new kind of group symbol emerges that actually iconizes the rupture from the land more than the connection to it. And my point is, of course, to try to take back the, uh, the raven. Uh, and uh, I, I'm going to try to describe uh, a little bit my, my attempts to do that and how I've tried to, uh, to, uh, to work with this, uh, this project. And before I start talking about this, I just have to mention a little something which is relevant whenever you're talking about uh, any Euro-descendant culture. And that is that you always have a bit of a battle in front of you. You cannot work with deep culture, perceived core elements of perceived whiteness without enforcing stuff that is problematic. Um, stuff that is associated with say, white traditionalism is also somehow connected to or can very easily be connected to white supremacy. And this is particularly true for uh, anything that, that just has the, the, um, uh, the word Viking anywhere in its like general proximity, right? And, and this is catastrophic because it secludes normal, decent white people uh, from our, their, our cultural heritage. Uh, and it secludes them inside that modernity, which is part of the problem because it ruptures people from relation to the land. Hence, the problematic associations uh, cause the ongoing rejection of traditional animist knowledge. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, and therefore you cannot engage with North European traditional animism without also not just being conscious about it or aware about it, but actively engaging actually um, uh, stuff like racism uh, and uh, injustices connected to structural injustices, for instance, connected to whiteness. So, um, and you just have to face that struggle. And uh, this is part of what makes Euro traditional knowledge very difficult to work with, because you're not just fighting to make academics aware that elves and trolls are real and that we have to start respecting them then, again, if we want to avoid the apocalypse. Um, you, you also by deep structural necessity need to actually fight white supremacy in the same go. You can't just leave that behind and say, okay, I think that's really important, but I'm, I'm gonna focus on, on climate change. I try not to whine too much about it because at the end of the day, it might actually, this unavoidable nature of this, uh, this issue might be uh, uh, sort of connected to the unavoidable nature of these issues from the point of view of the people who experience structural oppression. So, um, yes, and some symbols have already been lost. Uh, the, the swastika is a piece of Nordic traditional history, traditional animism, and I think it has been irrevocably soiled, taken from us. Uh, perhaps Hindus can use it, but North Europeans can't. And, and it, I don't think it, it matters trying to struggle, you can't. 
Um, if you go to Germany, for instance, I've heard that you can you have even trouble using stuff like runes because they are uh, uh, Nazis also use those symbols. And the Raven flag, it has not been taken. But bad guys have been paying a little bit too much attention to it somehow. They're taking a little bit of liking to it, but it hasn't fallen. It hasn't been associated with this position. So I decided that this potential for an eco-totemic kinship that I see in this symbol is so important that I will raise a battle line here uh, and basically go out and say, this is what the symbol means. It is exactly, in fact, the opposite. It is trans-ethnic symbol of kinship with other. It is not some identitarian self-cultist hula bula about pretty white girls in cornfields representing likeness or something like that. And um, um, just to illustrate uh, how I'm thinking about this, uh, I'll refer to a speaker at a paganist conference that I attended in January. And she had experienced pain uh, of seeing the American flag used by these capital insurrectionists. And that happened not so far before that. And she encouraged people to contemplate on the positive values that she associated with the symbol, the, the, uh, the American flag, the stars and stripes. She wanted to take that symbol back from what she perceived as neg negative uh, positions to what she perceived as positive positions, right? Um, but here's the thing. I, I remember listening to it and I was thinking, I'm not sure that's going to really work, contemplating. Uh, I mean, I'm a hippie. I'm contemplating a lot of things all the time. I'm not seeing world change a whole lot. But of course, this is a kind of a different discussion about how magic works and stuff like that. My personal um, uh, understanding, what really work is exactly what the organizers of the Biden presidential uh, inauguration did with, the, with this flag because they must have felt exactly the same uh, pain as this, this presenter. They wanted to own back the stars and stripes. Uh, and then they just had <laughs> incredible resources. So they created a field of 200,000 flags, American flags had that uh, inauguration ceremony. And I think that is an incredible, incredibly effective way of uh, charging a symbol with something that you want to charge it with. The enormous physical presence of that symbol embodying a specific perception or specific value system, that is a very, very powerful thing. And fortunately, I don't have unlimited limited resources and precedent and um, the hopes uh, of the whole uh, nation and so on. I don't, so I'm, I'm working slightly more from a slightly more grassroots uh, perspective on this. Um, and I'm just gonna describe a little bit. Um, I, I have been thinking with and looking at this Raven totemism for some time and I've been kind of working myself with making designs of this whole sort of human bird connectedness and uh, based on how it appears in the archeological finds and so on. Um, and then I, I liaised uh, with good people actually all over the planet more or less because I wanted the symbol and my interpretation of it to sort of come with a bang. You know, ideally like, like the Biden inauguration, like 200 flags going off at one point. I didn't, I didn't quite manage to get there, but that was sort of my idea. Um, 
And uh, I saw a contact a lot of people and, and uh, liaise with them about this idea and said, hey, are you on board with this? And some said yes, and some said, wow, that's amazing. And some ignored me. And, and, uh, but some people are sort of working with this. Um, and the problem is that, part of the problem is that in order to make stuff like this real, physical. This is the, the, the final design that came out, a very long process of developing, looking at different archeological finds, creating the, the uh, central mosque that you see there in the center of the Raven and, and, and also colors, very, uh, a lot of thought went into that in order to make the colors very much not look Nazi. Um, uh, my original idea was I wanted to hack the Danish flag, but if you use the colors of the Danish flag with this, then it just looked a little bit too Nazi. And a lot of people, a lot of people uh, just remarked that, thought, gave that up. And maybe there's a, a fundamental point to that also in the sense that, that this symbol is not national, it's, it's, it's totemic. And our national identitarian ethnic way of thinking about um, social connection is a different one than the totemic one that, that looks at connection with, with other beings. Um, so, um, but part of the problem that I, I faced with this is that the need to make it physical, like in the Barbino inauguration, there is an incredible physicality to having 200,000 stars and stripes placed in the middle of Washington. Um, and I also think that there's a magic in this, the, the imminence of something physical being used with an intention. That is where the the, the contemplative and all the meanings that I've developed inside my head, where they become real and where they become manifest in the world. Um, so, uh, so I decided to try to sell it, produce it and sell it. That's the only way I knew of, which of course involves its whole own, own kind of complex of problems. I need to have a business model and I need to, to I don't know, sell stuff and, and uh, also hopefully make a little bit of money on it so I can actually survive while I'm doing it. And that all that stuff is a little bit of troublesome. The symbol has, has been launched about a week ago and I just a couple of hours ago, I got the first uh, message from a guy who had, who had had it tattooed, uh, meaning that it's already in the process of becoming uh, popular culture. Um, and um, and uh, uh, yes. So, uh, so all this and trademarking and all this stuff is, 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 is troublesome. Um, while I obviously also just want to manifest the idea of kinship, uh, kinship with the living world, kinship between humans and other than humans with a traditional Eurocentric, uh, not Eurocentric, uh, Eurodescendant uh, symbolism. So, um, so uh, yes. And my strategy has been to contact all these people and, uh, for instance, contacted a lot of people uh, drawn to uh, Nordic polytheist religions, uh, heathens, um, but also activists. I really want activists to start using this, eco-activists, because a lot of uh, eco-activists today are um, directed towards stuff like indigenous knowledge and uh, for insane reasons that I, that don't really com combine some of my head. I think I'm one of the only scholars who's actually working on what might be termed European tradition, uh, European indigenous knowledge. I don't call it indigenous knowledge for political reasons, but that's another, let's call it traditional knowledge. Um, 
So, so this means that 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 extinction rebellion activists, uh, allies to uh, indigenous groups who are uh, working against uh, the, the pipeline three or uh, the the pipeline, all these things. These for these people, it could be a way for, for them to say, "We stand with you," and in in in, in a way of brotherhood with. With, with something that, that also comes from our heritage. Um, and um, so I uh, uh, actually managed, uh, I presented the idea to some extinction rebellion activists in Denmark, and they also actually already used the, the flag in, a, in, a, in an activist, what do you call it, sit down with the, at the Danish government, <laughs> which I, Personally, find a little bit that is symbolically powerful. That's the seat of power, um, and um, I, but I would like this to happen more. That's the bottom image that you see there. I've also given the flag to different people, uh, partly as a show of respect. The man that you see on top there is a is a very uh, well-known musician who actually made a uh, album recently called Kvirkarven, uh, White Raven, because White Raven is his personal uh, protective spirit. And, um, and I had had contact with him a little bit. He made me aware of Native Americans, Native American prophecies, specifically of the White Raven. Uh, so I felt that he was, um, he had contributed somehow to the, the, the whole uh, development of the thing. So I sent him a flag as a present. He then took a picture and put it on his, his Instagram, which then means that a lot of people see it. It gets a lot of validation. So it, there's this thing about at, at one, on the one side, respecting something that's spiritual and then this whole weird social media space where it also means that is that is in a sense useful for manifesting this uh this symbol um yes so these are the kind of exposure that i'm trying to create in order to sort of bring into the world this one. Oh, by the way, I'm also wearing a shirt t-shirt. I just remember <laughs> that a t-shirt mate. Um, but these are, these are kind of uh, uh, ways of trying to make real that, that symbol, a symbol that can, um, I think should take a, uh, that I think could play an important role in manifesting, uh, in manifesting um, kinship ties with nature, an eco-animist attitude to community. I think the Thorntons, those British scholars that I mentioned in the beginning, they are profoundly right somehow that this idea of humanity as associated with Raven as this really ambiguous trickster figure that both messes up things but creates the world in the process and that the wisdom that's in there is a wisdom that can connect us to uh, our traditional knowledge and our, our trajectories of traditional knowledge and bring them into our age, not as just like these images of very distant imagined pasts that might not be particularly relevant for us today. I mean, a Viking raven banner is probably not particularly re relevant for us today 
because it, it, it has a little bit too much of a, of a feeling of uh, we're gonna kill you and the ravens are gonna eat your uh, eyes and more. <laughs> That's probably what most people would think about it. But the totemic layers are there so much in this Nordic raven symbolism. And if you, if you, if you look into it a little bit with a sympathetic scholarly eye, then it is that you, that you, can, that you find these these sorts of, of oh, that's, that's my father that you see behind me. There it is that you find these these uh, these uh, symbolisms that that I think can speak in very compelling ways of looking into our time that we can hear, we can dialogue with these kind of symbolisms in a way where they can they can um, disclose very compelling voices. And as I have been working with, with this uh, stuff, I also discovered new things. Uh, for instance, um, uh, a woman uh, wrote me and said, are you aware that this prophecy of the white raven that is documented from the Yupik in, I think in Alaska, it's a Native American prophecy, the idea that the, when the white raven returns, then humanity, a new kind of spirituality will awaken in humanity, uh, a kind of spirituality that will, that will relink re us with the world. Um, I, uh, she then made me aware of uh, an astonishingly similar prophetic um, description of the white raven in, in, from Northern Europe, a ballad where that starts with a, a man being banished from the land because he has murdered his brother. He has ruptured kinship and he's sent away. But, and then the ballad asks, <clears throat> this is a medieval ballad, it asks, when can he return to the land? And it answers, when, and then when a lot of things happen. And all these things are inversions of standard reality that symbolizes or that symbolize an other world and this other world of the other than human has to get close in order for the uh, the rupture to be healed and one of these signs is that we see white raven um so um so i i i, I launched this whole thing by making first i wrote down and a popularized version of the uh, scholarly analysis of this, uh, put it online. I made a video where I spoke about the, uh, the scholar, also popularized the scholarly perspective of this. Then I made a video that sort of turned it a little bit more to the, the activist side, like this is, this is what we should do now. We should listen to the voice of Raven as we enter the time of Ragnarok. Uh, and uh, I put these online and they gained, I think, quite a lot of traction. And, and uh, for instance, the, the man that I spoke about before, the Norwegian um, uh, lead singer of, of a band called Badruna, um, he shared all, all that stuff. So it got a little bit of um, attention or uh, significant attention. So, so all this is obviously attempts to manifest one symbol and through manifesting and making real, making also material of that one symbol to create uh, a channel for 
uh, a specific perspective, uh, both on what it means to be Eurodescent and what it means to be white, but also what it means to, uh, to uh, build community in, a, in an age where of ruptured relation, of rebuild community in an age of ruptured relation. I think that's more or less what I have to say. Are there any uh, questions? There are, yeah, there are a few. There are a few. Thank you very much, Rune. That was a very interesting uh, conversation. I mean, um, not really conversation, sorry. Um, speech. Um, so there's a few questions that sort of seem to overlap a little bit. I'm going to try and see if I can unravel them. Um, so there was a question from Deborah, which was, her wording is, I'm intrigued by your vision of the power you see in the potential of this totem. But do you have a sense of the qualities that it will give rise to? Do you feel that you need to somehow control that? Or do you think that it is really, it's just a, a common symbol, but you allow it in a way to just take its own form depending on where in the world it sits? Um... Oh, I just see here that somebody is uh, is uh, musing about the organic chaos in my background. I'm really sorry for that. I'm I'm in my uh, parents' house and uh, there's a kitchen just below. Sorry, I, I thought I would only get my voice. Anyway, let me get back to that question. Yes, I do feel some level of responsibility. The primary, primarily, the kind of responsibility that I feel is about. Um, nationalist, particularly white nationalist usages of the symbol. I feel um, uh, a responsibility to, um, uh, you, I don't want to use the word rescue, but I feel the, the, the uh, responsibility to point the symbol away from this particular tendency, because I think it is contrary to the fundamental meanings of the symbol. And that means that it is a, um, it's part of those domesticating uh, things that Euro-animism has been subjected to. If a symbol like that is made into a nationalist symbol, then it is subjected to a specific kind way of being defined that uh, takes it out of alignment with its deep purpose. So in a sense, I think that particular responsibility and that way of trying to direct the symbol, I feel it flows from the symbol itself or from Raven itself. Beyond that, I, I think I am in the process of channeling something into the world. And uh, I also acknowledge that that, that, that that is difficult to control. Also, this being a trickster figure, <laughs> means that it's perhaps not supposed to be controlled, but perhaps supposed to be uh, trusted to mess with my expectations at some level. Uh, so, so, uh, so, so beyond this specific whiteness, nationalism-oriented detail, I, I sort of trust in Raven's voice to um, to bring the white things into the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I can go with you on that one. I work quite a lot with Raven and uh, yes, there's that Trixie side. Um, that's all part of the teaching. Um, 
but there is also this very magical quality to Raven. And I think that's something that, that is there everywhere in the world. There is this common, there's a common thread in Raven. Um, there's an interesting question right at the beginning from somebody who, uh, from Guy, it says, um, do you think that there is an equivalence or a similarity between the North's Raven and the South's Condor? You know, if we were listening to Itzhak earlier about that sort of the condor needing to come up again uh, in order to balance the the eagle, if you like, do you do you think that the raven fulfills a similar? I'm gonna be have to be I'm gonna have to be uh, uh, completely honest and say that I didn't get all the seemingly extremely interesting presentation before because I was involved in the organic chaos in my background. <laughs> I, have, I have three okay. children. Uh, okay. But uh, so, I, so so if you could just sum up yeah, two absolutely. sentences. So um, uh, the, the condor is uh, sort of more the, the South American and, and, and it is that uh, more feminine, more community-based, uh, more earth-centered, more heart-centered whereas the eagle is more the predator uh the the enforcer the controller if you like which is which has had rule over the northern hemisphere for for quite a lot if you think it, if we're looking again symbolism not only is it part of the um north american symbolism but it was also part of the the, the reich's symbol um and you can see it actually mirrored in quite a few cultures taken on in that form so i think that's basically the, the link there, that sort of masculine, feminine, or or more um, heart-centered to more authoritarian opposition. Awesome question. Um, I uh, actually thought a little bit about uh, the, the relation between Raven and Condor, and I thought about the gender charge of Raven, and uh, I think he's mostly seen as masculine yeah. but but I'm not I'm not uh, com it, it, that's not definitely not final if you look at a figure such as Odin then he is mainly masculine yet also gender ambiguous yeah. however um, I think the main point that I would make in the, this comparison uh, raven condor in relation to eagle is that eagles also occur in North, North European uh, history. And they occur in, in some sort of parallelism or something like that with ravens. But, ra but, but eagles exactly become these huge kind of cresty um, uh, state symbols of royal power and, and, and so on, where raven becomes, uh, is very strongly rejected as this symbol of other. Now, I think that this rejection rests partly on one particular trait that ravens and condors, I think, if I understand condors correctly, share. And that is that they are scavengers. They mm. eat carrion. Um, <clears throat> if I understand correctly, if, if I'm saying something wrong about condors here. But um, the eating carrion is a very, very powerful symbol of the, the transgression between this world and the next. Therefore, it is, an, it is a linking between this world and the next. A being, the, the, the idea of the raven being white 
but in both Native American and in fact in Abrahamic Christian and Muslim symbolisms. Uh, the, the, the raven is originally white, but then turns black when it transgresses something in the process of creating the world. This transgression is in Native American uh, uh, mythology that raven steals the light from uh, the chief of heaven and brings it down to the earth. He transforms into human shape, steals the light and brings it to humanity. I think it's an incredibly deep and incredibly transformational mysticism that the, these, these uh, Americans have. I, think, I really love that shit they, because it's, it is that darkest of beings from the sky that takes light and gives it to humanity. And in that process, it turns from white to dark. In the Abrahamic mythologies, you have a, a surprisingly similar idea about um, raven connected to creation of the land. Noah sends out raven over the deluge and raven is actually the one, it's sort of implied in the biblical text, who perhaps raises up the land from the, the flooded world. Um, and in specific uh, Abrahamic tradition, he turns black because he eats carrion. He eats dead animals and he's punished for that because in, in, Ju in Judaic tradition, eating uh, a dead animal is a very, very um, strong uh, transgression. It's a very strong break on Judaic law. So, so uh, his, this being associated with the sky, perhaps with God, which was perhaps originally white, turns black in a transgression by taking in something that is transforming into earth it's a creative process. Now, all these symbolisms are mediator symbolisms. These are trickster symbolisms connected with, with creation, connected with transgression, connected with, with uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the, the entanglement of humanity with other, uh, other than humans and so on. And this eating carrion uh, is characteristic of Raven and I would imagine also uh, for condors that, that these are beings from the sky who eat dead stuff. Uh, so, so there might be trickster characteristics that are very typical, very prominent in Raven and might also be in, in, in condor. And exactly these characteristics are important in, 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 in what we're talking about here, the, uh, the, the um, alternative to perhaps patriarchal dominance models I, that could have been iconized in, in Eagle. When you look at what um, uh, symbols have been associated with the god Odin, who's a very ambiguous god, the Eagles have also been associated with, with uh, Odin, but nobody thinks about that. That nobody thinks, uh, of it. And, and Odin was also a, a deity that was connected with madness and shamanism and transgender and blah, 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 but also with power, royal power and so on, perhaps iconized and evil, but nobody thinks about that. Everybody are into ravens, everybody gets raven tattoos all over the place and so on. So I think there is a, there is, yeah, I, I didn't hear the detail of the raven or the condor eagle, um, uh, complex that uh, was spoken that uh, was spoken about before but, uh, but there might be something similar here does it make sense once uh yes absolutely and and i think there's been some 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 comments that have 
validated that actually yeah yeah that 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 very much is the sort of link between them i am aware that we're running out of time so i i i'm not going to be able to get through all of these questions and i do hope you get a chance to have a look in the chat room and, and and have a look because there are some interesting questions in there um and there is certainly a lot of interest and respect for what you've said today um i'm gonna just throw one more in there that i think is is really pertinent and useful going forward so what would you this is from um walker parish so what would you encourage everyday people to do with this white raven symbol um, I would encourage them. It comes after a different recommendation. The first recommendation is to be active in eco-activism. Yeah. But use the, use the White Raven when you do that, because that will empower this eco-activism. Part of the problem, as a, a friend of mine has been making aware with contemporary eco-activism, is that it has no history. It's only operating in now and future. It's not operating in, we have a history of understanding this. The Ragnarok myth was, was, was uh, conceived in a moment of reflection on actual um, uh, experience, climate change and climate cataclysm. We have a history of understanding this and we need to, to take back into that history. Uh, and White Raven can channel that and thereby empower the uh, eco-activism that uh, we should all be doing. Yeah, indeed. So I, I just would like to clarify on that little point. So, so without us having to have any pre-knowledge or pre-sense um, of what the White Raven is, the White Raven itself has enough history that it already packs that punch. Is that sort of what you're saying? Is that why you've picked this particular symbol that we don't have to power it up? We add to that power, it's already got it. So if we use it, it's gonna help us. Is that right? A few, um, yes, I think so. Let me just uh, show you uh, the, uh, let me just show you the sign. If you look at the design, it is humanity connected with a bird, nature that it is that it is that simple it is that direct. i can say this with hyper complex ontological term anthropology word that nobody understands but forget about that it means humanity connected to nature and at one level it's that simple yeah beautiful lovely thank you so much Rune. and uh it was great actually having the background noise it's uh, very grounding very real nice to have the whole family in the home um brought into the into the meeting but on behalf of everybody thank you very much that was a fantastic uh talk um and i'm looking forward to getting my raven flag which is going to happen soon because i'm definitely a, a raven Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was super uh, awesome to be here.